Welcome. As you saw, perhaps from the video, we're, we're continuing a series right now. We are working our way through the book of James. I, I've loved this time. We're in it. It's just about our fifth week now, so it's still early, but really excited to see where it keeps going. The section we're going to be looking at, it's actually going to be out of James chapter 2. We're going to start in James chapter 2 today. But before we go there, there's this theme that I want to introduce to you guys. It was this idea that I first stumbled across reading a leadership book, maybe, I don't know, eight years, a decade ago, something like that. It's a book called Habitudes. Anybody here ever heard of something called the mirror effect? Mirror effect? Well, I, I hadn't heard of it before that. Here's what it is in principle. Here's what it is in principle, and I'll explain it. The mirror effect is simply like attracts like. Like attracts like. So here's why this was in this book. It's talking to leaders and it's saying, hey, what leaders have a bad tendency of doing is like attracts like. Specifically, it talked about hiring, building teams around you, where leaders go. And what we tend to gravitate towards, what you tend to gravitate towards, is people who are like you. So you go, and especially in a work environment, you build teams where they have personalities like you, backgrounds like you, they went to the same college as you, right? They often have the same gift set personality, environment, all that. Like attracts like. And they say that as a warning to leaders because here's what they know. When you begin to do that, when you put a bunch of people in a room that are all essentially the same, it's not the well-balanced team that you would want. Right? And I began to think about this in my own life, and here's what's true is I look back and I scan through every season. In middle school, right, I didn't really fit in. I transitioned to a new school. So I ended up hanging out with what you would have called like the social outcasts, and they were all my friends. But our whole camaraderie was around, well, we're not the cool kids, but we're cool to one another. Like attracts like. In high school, some things changed to where I ended up hanging out with a group of kids. And maybe this was kind of like your school or your high school or if you're in high school, anything like that, where there's all these kind of little cliques. But generally, I think folks are nicer than the way high school is portrayed in the movies, right? But a lot of times, here's who I ended up hanging out with. I hung out with the guys who could kind of hang out with everybody, who cared about school, who were into sports, but weren't necessarily identified as the really smart kids, the really athletic kids. Just kids that kind of go along with everybody. That was my like attracts like. I, I went to college, and I can remember picking a fraternity, right? And you go to fraternity, and it's strange because each fraternity house, and this is true if you were in a, like a social club, a fraternity, a sorority, or if you didn't do that, and the friends that you ended up hanging out with, getting a room together with, you tended to gravitate towards people who were like you. Like the fraternity houses, they all had these personalities, these profiles, where, hey, if I want to be this kid, if I want to be that kid, if I want to be that guy, if I want to be that guy, here's where I can go like attracts like. I can remember graduating, being a young professional, moving to Dallas, and getting connected there, and all of a sudden, without really even trying, I ended up finding myself in an environment, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but environment of educated, ambitious, tending to be politically conservative, background-minded, Right? Folks who at least came from a moral background. They weren't necessarily saying they were Christians, but they had a desire to follow after a God. And then later on, I became a Christian, and that began to change. Here's, here's the reason I share that. Like attracts like in your life and in mine. And that's not always a bad thing at all. But what James is going to show us today is he's going to show us how, while like attracting like can be good, love, real Christian love attracts all. It breaks boundaries. It goes across barriers. It crosses racial lines. Whatever line you want, like attracts like, but love attracts all. And we tend to see this as true, right? Even as Christians, here's why this is true of your life. 
right? If you're of a certain political party, I bet you don't have a ton of friends that are the other ones. Even if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? Here's another reason why I think this is true. Oh, man. You believe the best form to disciple your kid is homeschool. How could they ever send their kid to public school? And then there's the public school parents. And this isn't all of y'all, but I'm picking on some of y'all, and y'all won't ever come back. So it was fun getting to know you. And then there's public school parents who are like, how could you ever homeschool your kids and not send them into the environment? And all of a sudden, within the church, within Christians where love attracts all, there's this division. There's this weird sense of still tribalism. Right? The church, even we've done this. We show what James will call a partiality. Now, here's what partiality means, and we'll talk more about it in a second. It means a sinful sense of favoritism. A sinful sense of favoritism. Often, and we'll see it again in the text, we'll see it's based on external appearances or judgment. Right? The text, it's really going to outline rich and poor, but it expands to far more beyond that. It's socioeconomic, it is racial, it is ethnic, it is religious in how we care for one another. It's education. It's background. It's all of that. So what he's going to show us today is, well, yes, like attracts like, and that's not always wrong. Love attracts all. And if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus and you're wrestling with this, here's what should absolutely be true of you. You should want to be loving towards all people. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, I rarely meet someone who says, I don't like having friends. I don't want to be a kind individual even if they do not hold to the same internal moral code as a Christian, right? Generally, you meet folks and they say, no, I want to be loving to all. Here's what James is going to show you and he's going to show me today. He's going to show you why that matters and he'll show us how we do that. Where will be is James chapter 2. We're looking, we are going to look at verses 1 through 13. And the key theme throughout this is we're really going to begin to see is we church, we show no partiality, no sinful favoritism. We show no partiality to any one person because all people have dignity. All people have dignity. The way that we'll see that is really understanding what Christian love looks like. The first theme we'll talk about is how love, again, it shows no partiality. The second will be is how love treats others like royalty. And the third theme we'll see is how love extends mercy. To set up where we've been in James and where we're going today. James, he, he wrote this book to this scattered church, these people who fled because of persecution, and he's writing them to strengthen them in their faith, to call them to faithfulness still being worth it, despite trial, temptation, difficulty, and founding it on, as we learned last week, God's word. What he's continuing to do today, he's talking about what are the real characteristics of sincere Faith, like when, when you get around the church, and what I mean by church is not, again, I'm not a building, the people of God. When you get around God's people, they're imperfect, they mess it up, they'll need to ask your forgiveness, and they'll screw it up again. But here's what it should really be like. Here should be the predominant theme of their life. Why? Because they are marked by a faith. What we'll see today is he's really going to set up what's this theme of partiality. He, he, he knew what was true of what can show up in 21st century America, sinful favoritism, and the same way it can show up in 1st century Jerusalem. A lot of the themes you'll see today, his big brother, his first sermon, his big brother was Jesus. He did, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's in the book of Matthew. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to look at that today. But he's going to pull from a whole bunch of themes. He does that throughout this book, but man, there's multiple in this section. Well, really, he's just setting up. Real faith changes the worthy work. So if you have a Bible or you want to read it from your phone or, or whatever you've got, you can check it out up on the screens. But join me. We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So here's where we go. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, if you've been with us, that family language it better be a reminder. We've heard that each week. My brothers, he starts off right to the point. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord 
of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions? Another word for distinctions there is discriminations. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you, having dishonored the poor man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If, if you read that section and you're here and you're coming from, you're a fairly affluent individual. You're the rich guy. Here's what you should know. Two, two things. The first is, vast majority of everyone in this room, when you set us on a world scale, is extremely wealthy. You're hanging out in what tends to be a middle to upper class suburban community. I'm not saying that's true of everybody, right? But generally, church, if you're sitting here, we're doing pretty well. The second thing is if you are coming here and you are rich and you see this line, the Bible is not against wealth. If you're rich, richness is neutral, it's not morally negative. It's not morally positive. If anything, what you do see throughout Scripture, though, is warning against the temptation of the riches. The realization of, well, maybe I don't need God. Why? Because I do a pretty good job of providing for myself. But, but if you read this, what James is speaking to, don't, don't think he's coming at you because you have money or wealth. James knew the rich need Jesus, the poor need Jesus, the middle class need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. But what James is saying here is especially to this society is you guys draw sinful distinctions. You know what we can do? We can draw. I can draw sinful distinctions. So as we begin to see how we church, we show no one person partiality, no, no sinful favoritism because all people have dignity. The first way we do that is we realize love Shows others no partiality. So, so let's look through some of this text, what he's saying. James, he starts out again here. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He, he again reminds us as he appeals, hey, family of God. It's this appealing heart to listen to him. Show no partiality. Partiality, it literally meant to take someone's face and to turn it towards you. Again, it's the sinful favoritism. Oftentimes where this comes is we think because of another person's position, power, status, race, money, ethnic background, education level, there's a positive attribute to us. Showing partiality is oftentimes, not oftentimes, I'm going to say every time, it's parasitic. Right, because in the moment, what you're doing is you're clinging to one at the expense of another. Another way to say it, and James will say it in a minute, it's passing judgment, sinful judgment. You're determining inferior, superior. Right? He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith. Hold the faith, it literally means to just keep the faith. He's pleading with the church. You know the Lord of glory. You know that all glory is God's and one day it will be his. And from that, he came to rescue, to ransom, and to redeem the rich man, the poor man, the rich gal, the rich guy. It doesn't matter. Whoever you are, whatever your background, he came for you and he died for you. But this church then, in the same way now, people can. They had a hard time believing that. Actually, let me, let me be clarified. I don't think, actually, Peter ends up doing this in another section of the Bible in the book of Galatians, right? But what, what you really begin to see is there was absolutely this sinful favoritism, and he begins to prove it. He gives us an example, starting in verse 2, going through verse 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring, right? So he's setting up, there's going to be this con contrast. There's a rich man and a poor man. He's given this hypothetical illustration, right? If a man wearing a gold ring, to get a gold ring, you would have had to have a ton of of money. That's not like you can just go to K Jewelers and for 200 bucks you can get something. 
No, man, you had to have some serious coin to get a gold ring. And fine clothing comes into your assembly. Assembly there, this word could be used of um, a synagogue or a house church. Likely who he's speaking to is more of this house church. They come into your assembly. And then it starts to talk about in a poor man, in shabby clothing. Shabby literally means dirty. Clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention, what does pay attention mean? Absolutely what you think it means. Show preferential treatment. It literally means to gaze upon. It's where you see them and you think, oh, man. Oh, man. You pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place. So the rich man, come. Let me give you an elevated position. Right, oftentimes these assemblies, these house churches, they would have had benches lining one room and then benches up front, almost making like a square. The same thing would have been true of a synagogue. Right, where if you're wealthy, you could sit on those. But if not, or you didn't hold a form of distinction, you sat on the floor. And this is almost the theme of not just, hey, sit on the floor, but hey, no, no, you go sit over there. You, you may sit beneath my feet. Your, your Bible may say, beside my footstool, not even on the footstool, beside the footstool. And then he says why there's sinfulness in this. Have you not then made evil distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Why does he call us judges? Because in that moment, you and I, in the sinful partiality, we place the judgment of superior, inferior. And then he goes on. He even says with evil thoughts. Thoughts there, you could say two motives. Evil, I, I didn't know this till studying this passage this week. Evil, James uses that word multiple times throughout. But each time he uses three different Greek words for evil. Right, so as he goes to write this letter, there's three different words that he uses for evil. Now, all of them, surprise, they mean evil. But what's also true is there's an order. There's a rank to the inherent cruelty. This one is the worst form of evil. It literally means evil intentions have an effect of destruction. Church, if you want to destroy someone's heart, you treat them for any reason as the lesser. You want to damage the soul, you treat someone as the lesser. And James is appealing. You remember, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came to forgive you, free you, set you free, remind you of love. It is incompatible with the Christian faith to live in a way where there's a tolerance of sinful favoritism or partiality. He goes on and he sets up then right here through verse 5. Five through seven. What he's going to do in five through seven is he's going to give this list of four different rhetorical questions. Right? He gives four different rhetorical questions where at the end of each one, there's this affirmative yes. What I've done, and you can read five through seven again, but what I've done is I just wrote it in, in closer to layman's language to help me understand. The first question he asks is, has God not chosen the spiritually rich, even if the spiritually rich are financially broke, to inherit the kingdom. What he's saying there is you can be financially broke and yet spiritually rich. That one day, I, I think the world's wealthiest man right now is Jeff Bezos. Is that right? I think. I don't know anything about Jeff or his faith. Maybe he's a Christian. Maybe he's not. I don't know. For the purpose of this illustration, let's assume he is, right? Jeff and a person who came and a follower of Jesus Christ, net worth zero, got nothing, looking for a job. In death, they inherit the kingdom. God gets them, they get God. Does the way that they live impact that? Yes, we'll see that in a minute. But it's the same thing. Has God not also chosen the financially poor to inherit the riches of heaven? Absolutely. If he shows no distinction through that, why should we? He goes on. Second question, are not the materially rich often the ones that consistently are guilty of oppression. Right, here, here's what's true in this society as well as that one, but I really do think it would have been more typified, exemplified in a local way in that one. Oftentimes, the rich or the greed that drove it did so by not just earning, but by taking through exploiting 
You could think of examples of this today, but there would have been plenty that they could have thought of then. That's not to say that everyone's wealth is accumulated that way. But often, what was the case then is it was. The third one are not the material rich, often the ones that drag you to court. You know what you could do then? You could sue someone in the civil case the same way you could now. So a rich could take a poor man to court. But the poor man, he can't afford to defend himself. He can't afford to do that. Same thing's true now. Be a little guy. Try to take on a corporation. They will bury you in paperwork to where you can't afford the legal fees. Right? And he's just building this case of Jesus Christ says, don't. Why do we show the partiality? Don't care if they're poor, if they're rich. All need Jesus. And then he's coming through and he's building this case. Why, guys? Why? Why? The final question. Are not the material rich often the ones who blaspheme? Just means slander. God. Here's what riches do. Poverty creates an environment where you can, where it tempts you to curse God because he forgot you. Riches can create a temptation of where you're tempted to curse God, where you may not say that, but you effectively curse God by saying, I don't need God. I'm good. Here's what James is saying throughout all of this. The whole theme here, why we show no partiality, is heaven knows no second-class citizen. Therefore, God's church on this earth shouldn't either. Heaven knows no second-class citizen. Therefore, God's church here shouldn't either. And, and, and I don't think a bunch of people come in here with this overt view of, man, I just can't stand poor people. I just really dislike poor people. Right? If anything in the environment, people tend to come and they like hate on rich people and like everyone's terrible and evil and greedy. Right? I, I don't think a bunch of people have explicit racism. Right? But here's what I do think is true. You and I have more of a sinful tendency towards partiality than any of us would ever want to acknowledge or admit. Even well-intentioned people give way to wicked partiality. Love shows no partiality. I, I can remember I was a part of a homeless ministry in, in Dallas. That's where I lived before I moved here. Right, and I can remember hanging out with these guys in this ministry. It, it was exciting. It started with a few things. It started to grow to where we were going to this church. We'd effectively, we would pick people up around the city. We'd go to this church, right? And then afterwards, we'd go grab meals. We'd do our best to disciple, introduce to faith, evangelize, get them connected, help them transition off the streets, right? We, we would do all that the best we could. But there came this point where this ministry was smaller, and, th and then it kind of grew. But for us, what I mean by that is, man, it, you could never tell if it was going to be 12 people or 35, anywhere in there. Where all of a sudden, this environment, this great God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, all of a sudden, we became more of a noticeable presence. And what that meant is I had to go have, and what was right to do, I had to go have a meeting with the head of security there. And I can remember going and connecting with this guy, a great heart, love the guy. And, and we begin to talk through, hey, how do you really care for, how do you really shepherd these, these impoverished, right, and we'll break down in a bit what, what really defines poverty, these impoverished individuals who financially can't support themselves, who've been emotionally deprived for a long time, spiritual deprivation, atrophy of the soul. Poverty is not just financial. We, we all want to really care for them, but hey, as you come, right, there, there's more of a noticeable presence. So hey, can we ask you, can you guys come a little after the service starts? Right, there'll be less folks in here, it'll be easier to get in and out, which is true. When there was a lot of people in this town center area, it was hard to get in and out. Can you come after? And it was hard of, well, no, I, I think we'll still keep trying to come on time. And it was, well, hey, well, what, what, if, you, what if you came before and folks kind of found their seats and, and then they sat there? And here's what was beginning to happen. There was beginning to be this distinction there through well-intentioned, God-fearing people of there's an us and then they're them. Now, in that moment, I didn't have the spiritual maturity, the awareness to talk about it that way, to think about it that way. But all I had was this moment of being able to say, no, I don't think we can do that. But here's what we are responsible for doing, for caring for them well, because there are folks coming with mental instability. There are folks coming drunk. There are folks coming high. 
There are folks coming who can be a danger to themselves or to a danger to others. And we do have a responsibility to shepherd them as well as we have a responsibility to shepherd everybody who comes. I can remember our goal for that ministry, right, the way the folks talked about it. Is it, is it times you'd go to this wonderful, nice church, and it was great, man, well put together, people dressed up, and I love that. That's good. That is right. But we prayed that it would begin to have a bit of a smell to it, a bit of a smell. One of the main things that, as this ministry went, we found that kept people from wanting to join us was they knew they smelled bad. And they don't want to come, and people have to smell them. You know all that is? Internal human dignity. And so the prayer was, hey, God, would you make this place smell? Hey, church, it doesn't have to just be rich, poor, right? If you're here, right, and you're coming, whatever, whatever form of sinful favoritism we can tend to give ourselves to, we have to fight that. If you're here and you're white, which is the vast majority of us, you need Jesus. If you're here and you're black, you need Jesus. If you're here and you're super wealthy, super wealthy, you need Jesus. If you're here and you are straight broke, you need Jesus. If you're here and you speak English, I'll communicate to you in English. If you're here and you speak Spanish, we're trying to figure that out, but we're glad you're here right? <laughs> I'm trying to think of how I say this in Spanish, right? Right, but we are glad you're here. Wherever you are, we want to love you. We get that this environment looks this way because at times it's who we invite, it's who we know. That's not sinful. But where it's sinful is if a heart drifts towards the preferences of, hey, I don't go to that part of town. Hey, I don't engage with those folks. I, I don't like that parenting style. Therefore, I try not to surround myself with it. Hey, them, he's super rich, so it's hard to be around him. It's wicked and sinful. Hey, I know they're hurting financially, so every time I get around him, it makes me feel bad. Therefore, I don't. Church, unity, dignity, love shows no partiality. Let's jump back in the Bible. Let's keep looking here. We're going to go verses 8 through 11. Welcome to church, y'all. I love this. If you really fulfill, I love that. If you really fulfill, that means keep, the royal law. So he's transitioning themes here. The royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, now he's just straight up with it. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So hey, if you're a little weirded out how we went from partiality to murder and adultery, just stay with me, right? Here's what James is sharing through this second theme. Like, it, 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 he is reinforcing this idea. The church shows no partiality because all have dignity. The second purpose, the second reason behind that is love, Christian love, treats others like royalty. We're called to treat others the way we want to be treated. And we all love when we're treated like royalty. Let, let me show you that from the text. If you really fulfill, fulfill again, it means keep, the royal law according to to the scripture. Royal there, what, what it means is it means sovereign, kingly. A royal law, it would have been as if the king decreed this law. Therefore, it is binding throughout the land. You don't challenge the law because to challenge the law is to challenge the king. The royal law. And the law and the scriptures that he's referencing there, for James, that would have been his Old Testament. For you and I, here, the building upon of God's word. And he quotes he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he says this, this phrase, and you see Jesus repeat this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love treats others like royalty. Who's the first one to really do this for us? Right? If you're, if you're a Christian, here should be your answer. When I was a, a rebel, 
when I was disobedient, when I didn't care, when I was apathetic towards the things of God, when I didn't want him in my life to fight him. He still rescued me. He still pursued me. He still sought after me. And when he came, he didn't come and say, clean yourself up. Fix all of your problems. Have it all together. Why can't you just be better? He didn't say that. He just came to you and he came to me, church, and he said, believe that I paid for every wrong thing you've ever done. By trusting in me, it transforms the life. Let's go. Like, he came, the king of kings came down to take on the life of a servant to embrace human flesh Also, that one day you and I might be called royalty, heirs of the kingdom of God. So how, how, how do you want to be treated? How do I want to be treated? Anybody here ever go to an all-inclusive resort? Okay, if you haven't, honestly, you should go. I know we're talking about money, so that might make you feel awkward now because you can't afford it, but it's delightful, especially if you find one with good food, right? I can remember I went to one with my wife, and I walked through these doors, right? I'm walking up to the building, and the doors just open. I didn't open them. They just opened, and all of a sudden, there's this gal who walks up with this, like, uh, orange juice, mojito. I don't really know what it was. This mojito in a glass and says, hello, Mr. Umquist. And I remember being like, how does she know? Like it was this amazing treatment. You know what all of a sudden I loved? I loved room service whenever I could get it, right? I'd wake up, I'd place the phone call. Man, I love that I'd come back. My room was cleaned. Everything was taken care of. I love that I could go get one meal. And then once I was done with that meal, I was like, you know what? I'll try another. I will do lobster and steak. Why not? They treated me like royalty and it felt good. Church, every person walking the face of the earth, we are called to treat like royalty for two reasons. One, either Christ lives in them. They are believer, and as such, they are a daughter or a son of the king. Christ lives in them. Or two, Christ died for them. He died for them. Which what that means is they either of his or he pleads, come. That gives a tremendous sense of worth, tremendous sense of dignity. And that's why we are called to love them. And who do we love? It says there, who's your neighbor? A lot of times people will come and ask me, hey, what does it mean who's your neighbor? If we had more time, I'd teach this. Right, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a neighbor is defined not by biblically. A neighbor is defined not by geography, like location but by opportunity. So Christians, we don't ask, who is my neighbor? We don't ask that question. We ask the question, who will let me be their neighbor? And we seek to love those that extend the opportunity. We treat them the way we are to be treated. To do so, you are doing well. He continues on. But, and now he's going to switch where he's going to give an example. And here's why he's going to switch this next theme. Is he explicitly says, treat people like royalty. Don't show partiality. He's going to set up and he's going to say, it is explicitly sin. Jesus died for it. It's not some minor offense. And then there's major, which is why he's going to tag on murder and adultery. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as trans, transgressors. Transgressor, it's the same word where we get from trespass. It's, there's a limit, and you go beyond the limit. There is a love extended to you and me from God through his word that says you're called to treat all people with dignity, made in my image. I either live in them or I died for them. Treat them the way I treat you. And partiality is when we go beyond that. And then he says the next parts. 10 and 11, for whenever we keep the whole law, but fails in one point, or excuse me, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. So here's what James is now switching to. He just changed his argument, where what he's saying now is, hey, even if you're sitting there and you think, man, sinful favoritism, that's not that big of a deal, right? Here's a way that I think a lot of folks, and I might ruffle some feathers here, right? A lot of folks can come and it really depends on, hey, worship style and who you put in environments and how that makes a local body attractive, 
right, to where what people won't say is it's, it can be okay that Sunday morning there are predominantly, especially around here, white churches and minority churches. It can be okay, right, because we're attracted. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't apologize at all that I'm white. God sent me here. The pastor before me was black. There's no sorry or apology for that. I don't feel bad for the worship style, the music, the people who are here. We didn't come and pick them because of anything besides you sing, you love Jesus, you can lead, welcome. But here's what I'm telling you, church. You see this. If you want to check it out, check it out Revelation 21. You see new heavens, new earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Our heart is to drift towards like attracts like. We must fight to move towards love attracts all. Which is why we are called to engage with the people who look like us, act like us, work beside us. And we are called to pursue the people, to love the people who don't. How beautiful is it when the gospel overcomes every form of distinction and diversity with a greater sense of unity, all because we are united under, he died for me. That is brotherhood. That is family. That is what this should be like and look like. More and more. How do we do that? It's with love. And that's where James, he's setting up here this theme of, he anticipates even in this crowd where people will think, oh man, it's not that big of a deal to kind of be partial to one and impartial to the other. It's not that big of a deal. He anticipates that. And he says, well, hey, here's what I show you. If you break one form of the law, you're breaking all of the law. Not that committing one sin is committing every sin. That's not what he means. But by committing one sin, you fracture the relationship between you and God. How is it restored? By faith in Jesus. But you fracture that. And then he gives an example. He sets it up right here. Lost my spot, pardon me. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, but also said, do not murder. Those are two good things. I would encourage you, don't commit adultery. I would encourage you, don't murder. If you want to see really the definition behind that, how adultery, it's lustful thoughts. Murder is anger and hatred in your heart. You can check out Matthew 5. Right? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. But if you do, you become a transgressor of the law. He's talking to this group of people that begin to say, well, hey, I I may show favoritism, but man, I'm not killing anybody and I'm not cheating on my wife. And his first argument there is he's saying, hey, to break one sin is to hurt a whole relationship with God. You break all the law. The second theme, why do you think he pulls from murder and adultery to use his almost case law as he examines this? It's pretty serious. It's pretty serious, right? My opinion. My opinion. Stepping out of what I think the Bible explicitly teaches. Murder, adultery, and partiality. It is a devaluing of the soul, the dignity of a human life, the reality they've been made in the image of God. Murder is to kill what reflects and looks like God. Adultery is to steal and take from the image of God what is not Yours, what is not mine, whether through an image on a screen or an actual relationship with a person. It's assault against the imago Dei. What is partiality? It's the devaluing of a person. It's, it's, it's the lesser. It's the superior and the inferior. It's this church. We can't do that. We show no one person partiality because all people have dignity, and the way we do that is love treats others like royalty. There's multiple families here that knock this theme out of the park who get after this. There's one family that comes to mind where because of a love for Jesus, how a king became a servant, embraced flesh to come and die for you and to die for me, they're zealous to know this in their own life. They are zealous to know this in the life of their family. The part of the discipleship of their family, I don't know, a couple months ago, they went and spent a night in a shelter outside Austin. Why? Do you think it was to scratch their emotional itch to be charitable? Nope. It's because they realized Jesus Christ came to them. He sought the least of these in which they were. And by doing so, all people on the face of the earth, whether those in shelter, transitioning, previously homeless, and looking for work, wherever, are deserving of worth and of dignity. 
Who does that? Who, who does that? Who to disciple their family spends the night in a homeless shelter? Christians. Us. Us. We are called to treat all people like royalty. He either lives in them or he died for them. Let's look. Verses 12 and 13. Jumping back into James, 12 and 13. So speak and so act. And now he's changing our actions. Knowing this, he's coming after. Believing this, here's what changes the behavior. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you're confused on, hey, why now are we talking about judgment? Stay with me and I'll tell you. Is we seek to love people without partiality because there's dignity. A way that we do that is real love extends others' mercy. Now specifically, the way that we extend mercy is yes, through what we believe, but it's through our actions. It's through care. If this doesn't show up in the way that we live, church, we're missing it. So speak our words, so Act. It must come forth. The local church cannot be filled with good intentions. I'm going to say that one more time because if you think about that, that's worth talking about at lunch. The local church cannot be filled with good intentions. Because of Christ's action on our behalf, his death, burial, resurrection, we are filled with spirit-led action. See last week's talk. He continues on, where you, church, we will, as this text says, be judged. Now, if you hear and you grew up, and whenever you hear the word judge, you think like fire and brimstone, just, just stay with me. Here's what he means. Christians will be judged in two ways. There's, there's a faith judgment. Do you believe or do you not? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ in this life, he's not going to force you to spend eternity with him in the next. He will give you what you ask for. There's a faith judgment so, Christian, the first thing God's going to examine in you is, do you believe? Like, there's a, a favorite question that I have. I ask almost every person that as I get to know them. It's one of the most helpful things, and somebody asked it of me. They asked, hey, if you were to die today, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being certain, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? It feels like old school Baptist, and I dig it, right? With 10 being certain, how sure are you? And the next question is, and then you come and you stand before God and God says, why should I let you in? What would you answer? I shared that question with some family members recently. One of my family members looked at me and said, wait a minute, man, it's a trick question. It's either 10 or nothing. I was like, yeah, it's either 10 or nothing. Why? Because when you come and you stand before God, God doesn't want your resume of good works, that you went to church, that you started trying harder, that you wanted to be a better parent like your version of a spiritual form, I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps. Hey, I read my Bible 20 times last year when it was 10 times the year before. Doesn't want the resume. What he wants is, do you believe? He wants to know, do you have faith? But what comes after that is he will examine our works. He will examine our worthy work. How did we steward this life that he's given us. We're not going to read it. A great section of scripture, you can go to get a better picture of this, and I'll, and I'll explain it. It's 1 Corinthians 3. There's a bunch of others, but 1 Corinthians 3 is the most helpful for me, right? But where essentially where he comes, and he's talking to the church, where he's saying, hey, you have to extend other mercy because you will be judged by how you extend it. Christian, what God will do is he will judge our words, our actions, and our attitudes, we do not have to fear judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. But what we will feel is our life, according to 1 Corinthians 3, it is sifted as though by fire. The areas of my life where I'm less than faithful, where I give way to selfishness, where I give in to the partiality and the brokenness of my soul, where I do that in the mistreatment of my wife, of my community group, of my parents, of you, when it's sifted through fire, it will not last and I will feel a sense of loss. Doesn't mean I lose my relationship with God. Doesn't mean I won't rejoice with him for an eternity. It doesn't mean I'm not still a child of the king. It doesn't mean that I have to fear God's wrath somehow exploding on me. No, his wrath went 
on Jesus. But man, because he so loves me, what I want in that moment, to the best of my ability, not trying to earn his love, but because I know I already have it, I want to live this life faithful. I want to do my best. I'm imperfect. I'll totally mess it up. You're imperfect. You'll totally mess it up. And there's grace for all of it. And because there's grace, let's get after it. So he says, one, you got to realize you will be judged. But the second part where the judgment really comes, he examines against the law of liberty. If you're with us, you saw what that phrase is, the law of liberty. It's really referencing two things. First, it's the reality of he came to set you free. If you think God is here to rip you off, you've missed it. If you think he's here to set you free, you got it. The second theme is what does he examine us according to? His word. All throughout you see God is not partial. Neither are his people. God's will is not partial. His character is not partial. Therefore, his people are never to be partial. And why is James saying that? Because on the day when God comes and you, Christian, like you stand before, and I don't know what that moment will be like, you and I want that sense, even as we go in the sinful parts of our life that suffer loss, to feel mercy, which we will because that's God's character and nature, but we want mercy in the moment. And what, what James is saying is, hey, the mercy that I extend to others in this life, God will take it account and in that moment then. It's almost like, hey, I need to live now knowing what I'm going to want then. And what's the ultimate form of that? Is if you don't believe in God and don't trust in his mercy, right, this is the faith part. God, it won't extend you mercy in that moment. But for the church, for those who believe, and we're pleading with you to believe, he loves you, he died for you. Man, he wants that sense. My, my first job out of college, uh, I worked for a consulting firm. I did a ton of traveling. So maybe not every week, but most weeks, I got on a plane either Sunday night or Monday morning. I came back either Thursday or Friday, right, to where I'm doing this all the time. You kind of get in airplane mode. You get used to it. And here's what would happen. I'd walk onto the plane. The first thing coming, I didn't have status or anything like that, so I was usually way at the back or had to do something. And I'd get there. First thing I started looking for, where are the babies Right? Any of y'all do that? Who's got a kid? Because that's immediately, then I go into this mode as I walk by, because immediately I'm evaluating, okay, how far am I from those seats? I don't have Bose noise-canceling headphones, therefore I have to be strategic with this. Right? So how far do I sit? And then you walk by the folks with the kids, and I can remember even evaluating, like, okay, do they have snacks? Do they have activities? Do they have things to do? Because if they didn't, all of a sudden me, in my glory of a 22-year-old idiot, single without kids, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh man, they better take good care of that baby because I don't want to be inconvenienced by that baby. Then, now, now, my daughter Lily, she's about to turn two, we've probably taken, because my family's back in Georgia, I don't know, six plane flights, we've done something like that to where she's been on that plane multiple times, and every time I walk onto that plane, I'm just walking by, I plead mercy. I plead mercy. We're going to do everything we can. I plead mercy. If I could afford to buy you all noise-canceling headphones, I would, but I plead mercy. Now, man, anytime I'm on a plane, I don't have Lily. Anytime I'm out at a restaurant and the kid's losing it, I have nothing but, yeah, I get it. You don't even worry about it. You just keep going. You do you. I promise. Zero judgment. I get it. I want mercy. Why? Because I need mercy. So church, when it comes to our partiality, we can't show this in any realm, sinful favoritism. The rich can't be partial to the rich, the poor can't be partial to the poor, or the inverse. You can't be partial to people based on your race. If you cloak that in some form of southern traditionalism, or, or even a new term I found out recently, right? Racial consciousness. I'm telling you, it's okay to have a cultural identity. That's sin, though. God's got no business for that. Right? If you won't go to certain parts of town, like if you're not a Walmart person here in New Braunfels and you are a Target person, hear me say, I like Target. That's great. Got nothing against the two. 
But if there's anything more behind that besides, I just like the section where Chip and Joe outline the way the house looks, and that's really my selling factor. Okay, only the people who know Fixer Upper get that part. All right, if there's anything beyond that, man, repent. We've got to watch our heart. Here's the way that I think about it. Next time you go to Worst Fest, if you don't know what Worst Fest is, it's like a, I've got to be thoughtful here. <laughs> It is, it is a, man, I gotta be really thoughtful. <laughs> it is a tribute to the philanthropic heart of New Braunfels meets the tradition of the community and the way it was established, all wrapped up into a bunch of German beer and sausage. That's Worst Fest, right? Let's say you go there, and there's people who lead it. They're called Opas. It's weird, I know. If you're from another town, you're not missing out, right? If you're an Opa, we love you. We're so glad you're here, right? Right, but you go... If you go to Worst Fest and Opas are these people who lead it, and you show more kindness, respect, and dignity to the head Opa, like if you care if he knows your name, more than you do the person that cleans your plate off as you hand it to him behind a counter. Repent, church. Turn. Sunday mornings in America is the most segregated time of the week. I do not feel guilt over who are in this room. But you know what I also feel? A passion that love breaks down every barriers. And so therefore, what we do strive towards is the kingdom of God here on earth as it will be in heaven, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Like attracts like, love attracts all. We show no partiality to any one person because all people have dignity. We do this by first not showing partiality, sinful favoritism, basing our judgments on superficial appearances. Church, we don't do that. We love others in a way where we treat them like royalty. That is what Jesus did for you. It's what he did for me. And because of that, man, we got to go give that away. It is the greatest love the world will ever know. And you have the key that unlocks the door and God wants you to go and tell them. And I literally mean Tell them, treating them like royalty. And the final thing, church, here's why we do it. We, we know mercy by faith. And we want mercy in our faithfulness by the way that we live. So how do we do this? It's hard to talk about something like that and come up with a really pragmatic, practical way. Here's the best way I thought to do this. One, and you don't have to tell anybody this, uh, you might need to tell some folks in your community group, so I take that statement back. Who do you not feel comfortable around? Who do you not tend to connect with? Who do you just not enjoy? Right, I'm a, I'm a metal, right? If you're really wealthy and you have a hard time being around poor people because they're poor, that's, that's who I'm talking about for you. If you're lower middle class and all of a sudden you resent rich people because somehow they took it or they did something wrong for it, okay, that's what I'm talking about. If you're, if you're Republican and you can't be friends with a Democrat, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Fox News, CNN, <laughs> right? I'm just saying the gospel should overcome all. Jesus Christ broke down every racial barrier, thought, ideology. There's no one more for the social cause of justice than Jesus. He started it all. Church, we got to be that way. Homeschool, public school, private Christian school. I don't really know which way that one goes, but you too. Georgia Bulldogs, Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. They're dead to me. No, I'm kidding. Right? No, but it's true, man. Right? Here's what I mean. It's not, it's not wrong to love a football team. It's not wrong to connect with people. None of that is wrong. Use that. That's influence in relationship. Use that. So don't send me the email that I said to feel bad about that. Use that. But man, love always goes beyond that. So find who do you tend to feel uncomfortable around? Step two. Go learn the name of someone in that camp. I know no better way than to begin to dismantle partiality and a tendency towards preference. 
then when I begin to realize I have my, my me and my them, my us and my them, then when I go and learn the name of somebody in the them camp, when I get to know, when I fight to consider others as more significant than myself and I begin to get to know them, hey church, you shouldn't expect people in the other camp to come and do that for you. You should go and do that for them. Why? It's what Christ did for us. It is absolutely part of our ministry as ministers of reconciliation. So find who's uncomfortable and go make a friend. Go make a friend. Man, for the longest time in my life, I didn't understand this. It's something I'm still absolutely growing in and finding to understand now. The first place God showed me this was really financially. I didn't know I'd shown partiality, but for years of my life, I'd driven by and I'd thought about just the person on the corner as, well, hey, he could get a job, he should get a job, she should get a job, he could get a job. They chose us just because of drugs. And I sat there and I looked at the stoplight and I never even looked at him. Rich and poor. You can look at studies. Baby boomers, they notice diversity, mostly in terms of race. Gen X notice diversity, mostly in terms of equal opportunity, in particular, women employment options. That's Gen X. Millennials notice diversity, mostly in terms of rich and poor. Nuns. The generation to come. To them, diversity is just a given. To not have it is a weakness. Nuns get their name because on, on the census forms, they choose none for religion. Yet that heart mostly reflects every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Here's what I'm saying. Partiality is not just racial, it's not just financial, it's everything. It's a sinful motives of the heart, reach beyond and change. For me, though, it started mostly financial, and I didn't think about it that way. I can remember getting connected to a homeless friend. His name is Moses. I've talked about him here. I can remember one time going and grabbing lunch with him. It was after a church service. And we were going to go, and I, I went and I grabbed church with him. He was hanging out. I was just getting to know him. And we go to this uh, Mexican restaurant right after. Now, it's one of those where you go and you kind of sit down. They have a server, all that stuff, where he comes, and he gets out of the car first, and he starts walking. He goes, and he just sits on the stoop right outside. I didn't know him all that well. He just sat on the stoop. And I remember looking at him, like, what are you doing? He's like, I thought you were going to go in and get it and bring it back out. I was like, no, man. So I get him to stand up. He comes over. I open the door for him. I lead him in. It was one of those restaurants where right once you pass through the door, there's the hostess stand kind of right there, right? And he comes to the hostess stand. He sits there, and guy has no idea what to do, no idea. Now, now Moses, kind of background, he'd been living on the streets for 23 years. He get, has no idea what to do as he looks at the hostess. So I come, and I say, hey, can we just get the table for two? Grab the menus. They take us. They set us in a seat where we kind of had our backs towards the door to exit. I sat there with Moses, had a great lunch. He said, hey, man, what can I get? He's asking me, hey, what am I allowed to eat? I said, man, you can get whatever you want. You just got to eat it, right? He ordered steak, nachos. He crushed all of them. I can remember him sitting there. Moses, he came with a ball cap. One of the things he didn't do often was smile. It's because for much of the reason, part of that, right, he'd smoke crack. That's part of the reason he's on the streets. He had, he had two teeth. Right? So he didn't want to smile because as soon as he smiled, it was a dead giveaway. Right? Now he had this shirt, just this nice kind of t-shirt tucked in and jeans that were really dirty, shabby. Right? But he's sitting in this booth. You don't see the jeans. He's wearing this Texas Rangers ball cap, got this smile just sitting on his face, just a regular t-shirt, just like a regular guy. And I can remember sitting there across from Moses into my shame, man. I had no idea what was going on. There was this, this gal that walked by. She crossed past my left shoulder to where she then saw Moses because the door was that way. This older gal who walks by, she just turns and looks at him. She doesn't say anything, doesn't wave. She just gives him one of those kind, polite head nods. She just nodded her head at him. She noticed his existence. She just kept going, walked out the door. Moses started to cry. That was the first time I learned that this guy, from standing on a corner, most people had shown partiality and just driving by for a long time. No one had reminded him of the dignity that God had given him. I had been that person for a long time. I can still be that person. Church, we're meant to show no partiality to any one person because all people have dignity.
It doesn't matter if it's just rich and poor, white, black, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, homeschool, public school, Republican, Democrat, highly educated, not highly educated. It doesn't matter. Like attracts like. Love attracts all. That type of love changes a city, changes a community like this. It's the only type of love that James wants us to be about. Let me pray that we would do that. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for the privilege and the reminder of my life of what that looks like. Would you help me to grow and to strive in every way there? I need your help to do it. Would you help this body? That we be folks who don't feel bad for where we are. We steward our influences and our relationships and our networks and our environments. But we would also always fight the drift and would pursue righteousness. We need your help to do that. I need your help to do that. We love you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, hey, thank you all for coming. If you want to come and join us for another class as we talk about what we think it looks like to be the church here, we'd love to have you. But if not, man, y'all go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.